Hello and good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, my name is Spencer Ruckty, and on behalf of Harvard Bookstore and our beloved hosts at the Brattle Theater, I'm very pleased to welcome you to tonight's event for the release of Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI, edited by John Brockman. In a Harvard bookstore, first, tonight's presentation will feature lightning presentations from 13 experts from various fields, and we are so pleased to host them all tonight. Let's give a round of applause. If you are new to Harvard Bookstore's award-winning event series, welcome. Um, we run hundreds of events each year in and around Harvard Square. Some quick plugs for our upcoming lineup. Uh, next week on the 27th, we have David Reich over at the Harvard Science Center with his book, Who We Are and How We Got Here, Ancient DNA and the New Science of the Human Past. And on March 13th, we'll host biologist David Sloan Wilson at the store for his new book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. For more information on these and our many other upcoming events, you can check, it out, or check us out on, online at harvard.com slash events. Due to the unique nature of tonight's program, we unfortunately won't have time for audience Q&A or a book signing. Um, but if you haven't already, you can purchase your copy of tonight's featured book at the back of the theater. I'd like to express also our undying thanks for buying books from Harvard Bookstore. Your purchases support this author series and ensure the future of a landmark independent bookstore. Thank you. And finally, before we begin, a quick reminder to silence your cell phones or pagers for the talk. And now I'm delighted to introduce the editor of Possible Minds and the curator of tonight's very special event, who will be kicking off our lineup with a brief introduction. John Brockman is the internationally renowned cultural impresario whose career has encompassed the avant-garde art world, science, books, software, and the internet. Brockman is also the founder and publisher of the online salon Edge and the editor of the Edge Question book series, which includes This Idea is Brilliant, Know This, this idea must die. This explains everything. This will make you smarter in other volumes. He is the founder of the international literary and software agency Brockman Inc. We're so honored to have him tonight. Please welcome John Brockman to this stage. Thank you. I'm actually the guy that stands in the back of the theater, not in the front. Uh, and it was in 1965, Jonas Mekas, who passed away two weeks ago in 96, uh, sought me out and hired me to run the Filmmaker Cinematheque, which meant he handed me 30 names, Robert Rauschenberg, Namjoon Paik, Andy Warhol, Carolee Schneeman, like a group of who's who in the uh, New York avant-garde scene and said do a festival um, one per night and um, connect it to, to cinema but it doesn't have to be cinema it could be dance, poetry um, and it was and he went to Latvia for six weeks he came back the festival was finished and it was a, a huge success there was nothing like it that I've seen since. It was called the Expanded Cinema Festival, and it led to um, multimedia, to mixed-media discos, to uh, 
the first uh, huge media disco, which was called Murray the K's World and made the cover of Life magazine. And in that one year following the festival, we had three uh, covers, two in Life and one in the New York Times magazine. Um, so that was all very excited. And, and, and during that time, John Cage was having meetings where he would talk to young artists about whatever he was thinking about. And luckily, I got invited. And what he wanted to talk about was Norbert Wiener, Claude Shannon, and Marshall McLuhan. Uh, and we did. And I would say those meetings were incredibly exciting. I never, never, thr- never had thrilling experiences like that before or since. At one point... He reached into his book, into his bookcase, pulled out a book, and handed me a volume and said, this is for you. And it was Cybernetics by Norbert Wiener. Three years later, Stuart Brand, who most of you have heard of, and I sat in a corner of his Airstream trailer in Menlo Park, underlining the book together. And you could say that was the beginning of the Internet culture. Uh, so um, how do these things connect Um, going from the art world to the world of technology science uh, mechanical engineering robotics you'll find out in this book which is 25 ways of looking at AI with people that are experts in AI and beyond that have thought about this stuff all their lives um and that transcend the divide that happened in 1960 when digital people uh, came in and rightly took over because cybernetics had pretty much hit a dead end as a science. But as an idea, the cybernetic idea prevails. It's everywhere. It's how we live. And this big book, I believe, gives voice to it. I'd like to thank all the speakers that are here tonight, that have participated uh, from the beginning, and um, welcome you, and let's take it from here. Thank you so much, John. All right, let's get started. Mary Catherine Bateson, a writer and cultural anthropologist, is Professor Emerita at George Mason University, a visiting scholar at the Sloan Center on Aging and Work at Boston College, and the author of many books, including With a Daughter's Eye and Composing a Life. Please welcome Mary Catherine Bateson. Well, I thought I would start with a little game I've been playing. Not just the one I just played, but another one that's related. I've been asking people things like, where does the smoke go after it comes out of the top of the chimney? And you know what they say? Away. Where does the sewage go after it gets dumped into the river? Away. Where is away? A long way away, right? 
There is no away. Now think of what a major block we've set up in our thinking when we look at a question like shit going into a river, past pastures, past towns, schools, and we say, well, it's it's just going or and into the ocean where it eventually moves around the entire planet. Can it really be that the word away means the entire planet? That's what away means. And probably everyone here remembers that when the effort was made to deal with acid rain, the solution was to extend the height of chimneys on factories so that it would go away more effectively. And it did indeed. And acid rain went away which is to say, spread to greater distances. And then they had to think again. They had to say, there is no way we're going to have to deal with this pollution, this smoke. It's part of the world we live in now. We made it. One of the extraordinary things that hasn't quite happened yet as a result of the cybernetic revolution is the genuine understanding that everything is connected to everything else. Because human beings are very good at saying, We're going to have a department of this and a department of that and a department of this and one another of that. And they're not going to talk to each other. And their failure to talk to each other is why we are in such deep trouble in the world at the moment. Now, I love computers. Well, I don't actually love computers, but I use them, (laughs) and I'm in deep trouble when it doesn't work. Um, But I believe that there was, that there were two bodies of interrelated thought included when we think about the cybernetic revolution. One was the one that led to computer science, to the construction of all these handy machines. Right? The other was what is still called systems theory. And systems theory is an orphan. Computer science represents millions and billions of dollars. 
systems theory is only a couple of departments in the entire country. And people talk about how do I get a doctor, doctoral degree in systems theory? And the answer is don't. You won't be able to get a job. Get a business degree. Computer science builds handy machines that allow us to do, to carry out mathematical and research processes, modeling of various kinds that we understand more efficiently than we were able to do with a pencil and paper. Because we have the models. Systems theory is a source of models that are more flexible, more responsive, more, in many ways, complex than people who think they know how to describe situations usually use. And it is the systems, the most important fact about systems is looking at a lot of disparate events, people, historical memories, popular myths, one by one, as if they were separate. It's the call to look at, at the system as a whole. I've been going around saying to people, we're not going to be able to address climate change as a whole unless we decide that the human species is a single species and behave that way. Unless we recognize that we are parts of a living system, could be a uni uh, multiple living systems, actually overlapping. We're part of families, we're part of universities, uh, we're part of companies, uh, we're part of the white race, we're, or the black race, or whoever race, which is a whole, doesn't divide up. And unless we think, remember at the very beginning of the environmental movement, the mo one of the most popular slogans was, think globally, act locally. Well, how often do we succeed in acting globally? Kate Darling is a research specialist at MIT Media Lab, a fellow at Harvard Berkman Center, and a leading expert in robot ethics. 
Her work has been published in Vogue, The New Yorker, The Guardian, Boston Globe, and so much more. Please welcome Kate Darling. Good evening. I'm Kate, and I love robots. I probably love robots more than I love Skittles. Um, I love robots more than the media loves robots, for sure. I feel like with every new technological development in robotics or artificial intelligence, the media seizes on these two questions. Will the robots take all of our jobs? And will the robots destroy all of human civilization? And it's, it's not that those aren't interesting questions, but they're not the only questions. And they're not the only questions that I'm personally interested in. So one of the things that I think is fascinating, for example, is that there's this company in Japan that is a manufacturing company, and they have this assembly line, and they have workers in the factory that come in in the mornings, and they do these exercises to warm up their bodies for their day on the assembly line, And the company will have the robots working on the assembly line do the same exercises with their arms in order to be perceived as colleagues. I think it's interesting that just last week when NASA shut down Opportunity, their Mars rover, people cried literal tears because they were sad about the loss of this robot. I am interested in this growing and already substantial body of research that shows that we treat robots like they're alive, even though we know perfectly well that they're just machines. And this goes beyond just the influence of science fiction and pop culture. It turns out that we're, we're biologically hardwired to project intent and life onto movement in our physical space that seems autonomous to us. So from the Roomba vacuum cleaner that people feel bad for when it gets stuck under the couch to the military robots that soldiers have funerals for, we're just complete suckers for anthropomorphizing these machines. And we're headed towards a world where this technology is everywhere. So, you know, will AI ever develop consciousness or feelings in the far, far future? Who knows? But in the meantime... Even if the machines can't feel, we feel for them. And that matters, because if we're trying to integrate this technology into shared spaces, we need to understand that people treat it differently than other devices, and that this can have consequences. Do we want soldiers risking their lives to save a robot on the battlefield? Do we want companies to be able to leverage this emotional connection to robots to collect data or manipulate consumers. And then on the other hand, there are some really positive use cases that we're already seeing in health and education. Do we want to be able to engage autistic children in ways that we haven't seen previously? Could we use robots as animal therapy replacements where we can't use real animals in order to calm distressed patients? Here's another question for the near-term future. What about violence towards robots? I did a workshop a few years ago with my friend Hannes Gosselt where we took these really cute baby dinosaur robots and we gave them to groups of people and had them interact with them. 
And then we unveiled a hammer and a hatchet, and we told them to torture and kill the robots. It was, it was very dramatic. They all absolutely refused. So that was interesting. And then that inspired some later research that I did at MIT with Palash Nandi, where we were looking at the connection between people's tendencies for empathy and their hesitation to hit a robot, or in our case, a hex bug, which is a toy that moves around like a little bug. And, well, it turns out that those people on the show Westworld that just go around, you know, raping and killing the robots, they would probably score low on a test for empathic concern. (laughs) But it's not just the question of whether we can measure people's empathy using robots. I also want to know if we can change people's empathy using robots. Could we use robots therapeutically to help people? Or the flip side... Could it be desensitizing to people to be violent towards very lifelike robotic objects? You know, is that a healthy outlet for violent behavior? Could be. Or is it training our cruelty muscles? We have no idea what direction this goes in. So here's my slightly different perspective on AI. Instead of only worrying about what happens to us when the robots decide to come back and kick our asses, Maybe we should ask ourselves what it does to us when we kick the robots or when we like them too much. Because even if the machines never learn how to feel, how we behave around them might matter for us. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Kate. Next up, Peter Gaussen is a science historian, Joseph Pellegrino University professor and co-founder of the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard University and the author of Einstein's Clocks, Poincaré's Maps, Empires of Time. Please welcome Peter Gaussen. So I'm interested here, I'm sorry, I'm slightly losing my voice, Um, so I uh, apologize for that. Um, I'm interested in AI in very different kinds of ways. One is as a very useful, indeed crucial part of doing interesting scientific work. Uh, For instance, this black hole initiative that I'm uh, part of, where one of the features of that is an attempt to try to make images of a black hole. And AI plays a very important role in being able to try to extract images from uh, data that, 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 are, that are being gathered around the planet. Um, but I'm also concerned about the way that AI lives in the world. And one of the ways that I am concerned is this is an increasingly popular use of AI as a mechanism to sentence people who have been convicted of crimes. And the AI is being used specifically to try to uh, improve the assessment of how likely somebody might be uh, to, to, to commit a crime again, to, to enter into recidivism in various ways. And there, there are various problems with this. But one of the ones that interests me most is the long-term fascination with objectivity and what it means. In the in most scientific domains, the attempt, for instance, to make an image that was as 
good as possible of the basic scientific objects in the world around us begins with somebody who has a claim to having a genial ability to sort of part the curtains of reality and see the ideal forms behind that curtain, like Goethe or Albinus or Cheseldon. And in the 19th century, and it was only in the 19th century, a new idea came to the fore, namely that we should look for a kind of mechanical objectivity, a procedural or algorithmic way of generating an image that reduced our intervention as much as possible. In the 20th century, we began to supplement that by a recognition that sometimes we need expert judgment, not the genius of Albinus or Cheseldon or Goethe, but rather somebody that could be trained to make certain distinctions or to find certain basic forms in the world around us. And I think that the temptations that we often feel, especially in the social sciences, often grasp furiously at this 19th century notion of mechanical objectivity as if it were the only form a way to get to a scientific or systematic understanding of the world around us. And it has great danger because I think what you see in courtrooms and judges' attraction to this idea of AI-generated sentencing procedures is that for the judges, this is objective. It is a great, it is a pleasure and a relief to be able to take off of their own shoulders the burden of making assessments uh, either the jury or the judge, for what a sentence should be, but instead to say, put the information into the black box and let the neural network layers sort it out, and whoever wins, wins, and loses, loses. But I think this temptation to try to black box something as crucial to our notion of justice and fairness in our society as sentencing is many dangers. One is that it's hard sometimes uh, to, ex to figure out what an AI system is actually doing. Sometimes that's made even more difficult by the fact that the companies that design the programs consider them proprietary secrets. But even if you, they don't declare them to be proprietary secrets, they can be hard to extract. And so you don't know whether the criteria being used to sentence, for instance, is too dependent uh, on where somebody was born or lived or educated, and that those decisions can become proxy for race or for other things that we would consider to be abhorrent, were they used explicitly or implicitly in the sentencing uh, in our justice system more generally. So I think that AI has this immense promise of being able to help us sort out uh, objects in the world and how to proceed, uh, but it also if it's applied with this idea that scientific objectivity is that which is mechanical and the mechanical is that which is not being directly intervened on by us, then that can lead us to some bad places. And one of those worrisome places, I believe, is in automatic sentencing, AI-driven automatic sentencing. Thank you. Our next speaker, Allison Gopnik, is a developmental psychologist at UC Berkeley. Oh, Neil Gershenfeld is a physicist and director of MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms. He is the author of FAB, co-author of Designing Reality, and the founder of the Global Fab Lab Network. Please welcome Neil Gershenfeld.
So we're here because we're in the midst of an AI revolution, right? Well, let's look at the numbers. Uh, today's biggest computers are 100 petaflops, which is 10 to the uh, 17, 10 followed by 17 zeros ops per second. Uh, your brain is 10 to the 15 synapses. They fire 100 times a second, which is exactly the same number, 10 to the 17 ops per second. And so if the supercomputer has the same number of parts of our brain, we'd be derelict unless it could do about the same thing. <laughs> and so the AI, depending on your count, is maybe the fifth boom-bust cycle from we're doomed to it's going to save everything. But quietly, during that whole period of boom-bust, just the number of bytes you can process, the number of bytes you can store, the number of bytes you gather have been steadily progressing exponentially. And what seems like a revolution is computers today have about the same number of parts we have, so they can do about what we can do. It's not a revolution, it's just this exponential scaling. Um, so, but stepping back, AI has a kind of a mind-body problem, because it generally doesn't have a body. Um, there's a new digital revolution happening um, that I'm most involved in, which is how you go from digital to physical. So look, look at the computer that has the same complexity as your brain now. Um, the petaflop computer has 10 to the 7 cores with 10 to the, 18, 10 to the 8 transistors per core, about 10 to the 15 transistors. Uh, its memory has 10 to the 15, so it's made of 10 to the 15 parts to match uh, what you do. Um, while you're sitting here listening to me, you have 10 to the 13 cells. Each cell has about 10 to the 5 ribosomes. Ribosomes are this amazing molecular assembler that builds your parts out of molecular Lego. Um, they, they're slow. They run at 1 hertz, that one molecule per second they bolt together to make you. But you have an awful lot of them. So while you've been listening to me, you've been placing 10 to the 18 parts per second, which means each of you is making 1,000 su supercomputers a second. Um, it's, it's a remarkable rate of complexity. And so Science Magazine last year for the breakthrough of 2018, it wasn't AI, it was morphogenesis. Um, morphogenesis is the mother of all AI problems. It's the one that created us. Morphogenesis is how you go from genes to form and how evolution finds genes. One of the oldest parts of the genome, carefully curated across uh, all living things, are called morphogenes, um, like the Hox genes. And these are actually little computer programs in your genome. It's, it's an unusual part of the genome that's actually read out like a program, and it's a program that produces you. Evolution doesn't do random search. Evolution does um, this very careful search because most things you could do to the genome would either be inconsequential or fatal, and it's hard to be interesting. But searching in the space of these developmental programs lets you innovate going from webs to uh, wings and five fingers to um, six fingers. Uh, it's an interesting space to search. And so if you look at how evolution works, it does every single thing we've learned about AI, but it's a kind of molecular computing um, searching over the principles that gave us life. Now, the founders of computing understood this. The founders of computing, um, towards the end of their life, didn't look off in the cloud with an abstract fiction of digital computing. Um, Alan Turing, the last thing he studied, was morphogenesis, was um, how genes become patterns, um, trying to understand how the code in the genome gives rise to life. Uh, John von Neumann, one of the last things he studied was self-replication, how a program can communicate a plan for its own construction to make a self-replicating machine. And so they both ended up by studying how computation goes from virtual to physical. 
Um, at the time, those were theoretical studies, but we're now at a remarkable point where we can actually do this experimentally. In my lab and others, in molecular biology, we can design self-reproducing systems, and we can build the principles of life in inorganic systems to do this sort of morphogenesis. And so it's blurring the boundary between animate and automata in this very, very deep way. And so for all the fears and hope about AI you've heard, they're really missing something much more dramatic, which is when the atoms can arrange the bits to arrange atoms, when you can close that loop. Technologically, it's possible today, and it has the remarkable and terrifying implication that anyone will be able to make almost anything. Thank you. Alison Gopnik is a developmental psychologist at UC Berkeley. Her books, her books include The Philosophical Baby and, most recently, The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Tells Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children. Please welcome Alison Gopnik. If you look at the famous paper where Turing first talked about AI, the whole first section that everyone knows about talks about the imitation game as the, the Turing test, as the criterion for human intelligence. But what people don't remember is that right after he's described the Turing test, he gives it up. He says, you know, actually, maybe that's not such a great idea. If we really wanted to have an intelligent system, what we would need is a machine that could learn like a child. And the whole rest of the paper is about what it would mean to have a machine that could actually learn like a child. Now, as I say, that's not a part of the paper that people had referred to very much in the past. But more recently, that part of the paper has suddenly become really relevant. And the reason it's become so relevant is because the great advances in the past five years or so that have led to the great renaissance of AI have been advances in the ways that we understand learning, and as Turing, as usual, presciently realized, uh, the best learners that we know of in the universe are actually human children. So the question is, if we're interested in having machines that learn, an obvious place to look is to look at how human children learn. Now, the trouble is when you do that, um, what you see is that the way that human children learn is really, really, really different from the way that the contemporary AI systems learn. Um, and I've spent 30 years, uh, my colleagues and I, actually figuring out something about how ch children learn and even what kinds of computations allow them to learn so much so quickly. So if you look at the contemporary AI systems, things like deep learning, um, one of the things they do is take enormous data sets. And in fact, arguably, the advances in machine learning aren't because we've had any brilliant insights about new kinds of algorithms. It's that we've got these very, very, very large data sites that those algorithms can operate on and very fast computers that can actually do those operations. If you look at children, children are learning from three examples, four examples, five examples, um, and we can actually show this in the lab. So that's already a big difference in the kind of learning that's taking place. 
Secondly, what the new AIs are doing is essentially pulling out statistical patterns from those giant data sets. So they're figuring out something about what even very subtle statistical regularities are in those data sets. Um, and that, again, has advantages. It lets you do all sorts of tasks. But it also has some really serious limitations. In particular, it's not very good for generalization. And famously, for instance, AIs get fooled by adversarial examples that are statistically similar to the things they've been trained on, but really aren't like them at all. If you look at kids, by the time kids are three or four, they've figured out everyday theories, grammars, uh, perceptual representations that are much, much more powerful, much more general, give you a much better range of predictive predictions, aren't fooled by adversarial examples in the same ways that uh, AIs are. Um, so kids are pulling out these abstract, extremely powerful predictive models of the world from very small amounts of data. How else, how do they do that? Well, here's another difference between the way that most AIs work and the way that kids work. Um, AIs, uh, as Neil was just saying, don't have bodies. They're inside. Whereas when we actually look at what children are doing, children are actually actively experimenting on the world to try and get the data that they need, the data that's just the right kind of new data to be relevant to their theories. Um, uh, when scientists do this, we call it experimentation. When kids do it, we call it getting into everything. But our studies have shown that it's actually the same thing. When kids are getting into everything, to a remarkable degree, what they're doing is finding exactly the right kind of new data to test new theories and test new ideas. And finally, uh, computers are isolated. New AIs are isolated from other computers, from people. And one of the things that we know about children is that children are deeply immersed in a cultural world that includes other people. So lots of people have suggested that the secret of human success is the fact that we can learn from the other people around us. And again, when children do that, we call it being incredibly adorable and cute so that everyone around them will give them the right kind of information. But again, one of the things we've discovered in our lab is that long before children are doing anything like going to school or being taught, they're incredibly sensitive to social signals and social kinds of information. Uh, so those four things, three things, being able to pull out abstract structure from very small amounts of data, being able to actually do experiments out in the world to get new kinds of data, being able to learn culturally from other people, that seems to be the secret of how children are learning. And at the moment, at least, we don't have AI systems that are even in the same ballpark um, as children on any of those dimensions. Now, I'm a cognitive scientist. I think that ultimately we're going to understand the mind by thinking of it as a series of computations. But it has to be said that at the moment, the very, very best AIs that we know of aren't even in the same ballpark computationally as every four-year-old child. Thank you. Caroline Jones is a professor of art history in the Department of Architecture at MIT and author of Eyesight Alone, Clement Greenberg's Modernism in the Bureaucratization of the Senses, Machine in the Studio, Constructing the Post-War American Artist, and the Global Work of Art. Please welcome Caroline Jones.
So much going on up here. <laughs> There's one. So it's a great privilege to be part of this book. When John asked me to think for this question, I chose artists that called themselves cybernetic sculptors, which was an interesting moment in the mid-60s when artists were interested in technologies that would plunge the visitor into a technosphere. And that was unprecedented. And I believe that was the first moment where public figures coming to an art museum or coming to a festival were learning what it was to be in a responsive environment of machinery that was kind of training us for inhabiting AI. The, the provocation I want to lob to you tonight is of a different order, and it is essentially in praise of wetware. This might collect, connect to what Neil was saying. It certainly connects to what Allison was saying in the sense that when we talk about AI, we need to ask ourselves, what do we mean by this word intelligence? Because our cognition is a lot more than what's in the cranium. And here I celebrate Mary Catherine Bateson's comment about her father Gregory Bateson's work where she said, you know, mind is not confined by the skin, right? We are in the world in a wet way, in a chemical way, in a questing way to make sense of a complete planetary engagement that creates us as human and gives us our knowledge and our intelligence, right? So think about the immune brain, which has nothing to do with the cranium. It doesn't even have to do with neurons. It learns. It encounters the world. It decides what friends and foes are. It remembers things. Sometimes it forgets, right? We would be wise to think much more holistically about this kind of intelligence, the wetware that we have within, before we start imagining that artificial intelligence is anything like that model. I'll keep it short. Thank you. Next, we have David Kaiser. David Kaiser is a Garamhausen professor of the history of science and professor of physics at MIT and head of its program in science, technology, and society. He is the author of How the Hippies Save Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival in the forthcoming book, American Physics and the Cold War Bubble. Please welcome David Kaiser. Thanks so much. Um, Recently, I, I reread Norbert Wiener's book, The Human Use of Human Beings. I was actually prompted to do so from discussions with John Brockman and several of the other speakers here uh, tonight. It's really interesting rereading that book. The book was first published in 1950. Wiener, as, as many of you will know, was a, a mathematical prodigy, spent most of his career in mathematics at MIT. And the book has, this, I think when we read it today, has this really remarkable kind of doubleness to it, a kind of strange both here and not here of our time and yet somehow quite old. Um, on the one hand, it was, I think, just remarkably forward-looking, prescient, I mean, sort of eerily prescient. Uh, and yet also, when we went, at least when I went back to it, it struck me as, as sort of really deeply anchored in a much older time. In fact, closer, I think, ultimately to the 19th century rather than reaching toward the 21st. 
The forward-looking part is sort of easy to see. It's the, it's the most obvious feature from the book. Uh, Wiener was describing worldwide connected networks of, of computers and machines uh, laden with feedback loops uh, that would be sort of running algorithmic automation that would change the workforce from everything from, from both blue-collar and white-collar. It was a vision that we now take sort of for granted with our smartphones and everything else today. That part sort of is, is, is easy to see in how it was clearly ahead of his time. And yet, when I read the, sort of kept reading, read the rest of the book, it struck me that a lot of what was going on in that book really felt actually much older, felt, felt anchored really in quite a different time. And for me, at least, that came most clear in looking at how Wiener was thinking about the notion of information. Uh, so he was writing the book very soon after Claude Shannon's now, of course, very famous work, first published in 1948, laying sort of foundations of modern information theory. They knew each other. Shannon had done his PhD in mathematics at MIT in the late 30s, and Wiener was, was writing in a more accessible or popular vein very soon after uh, Shannon's uh, landmark papers. Uh, and again, as many of you will know, what Shannon concluded in these 1948 papers was that information had actually nothing to do with meaning, the, the sort of poets and linguists notwithstanding. Information was actually about um, a measure of, uh, of, of a kind of order or disorder. It really was a, a measure of uh, strings of, of what we might now call bits, strings of symbols drawn from a larger universe, and it's a measure of, of how likely that particular ordering of, str- of, of, uh, of bits might be given the universe of possible combinations and permutations. It had nothing to do with meaning. It was, Shannon concluded, equivalent to entropy, that great, great crowning achievement of uh, the physical sciences in the late 19th century. So Norbert Wiener uses this to great effect. Wiener says, if information, following Shannon, is like entropy, then it can't be conserved. It's not like energy. There's no free lunch. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Entropy, as folks had learned just not long before uh, Wiener himself was born, entropy must inexorably increase. It must grow over time. Disorder will win. Uh, And this is why the future can't be like the past. This is a great, great sort of bedrock of of the kind of legacy of the physical sciences uh, on which now Wiener is is going to build. And he says, if, if following Shannon, information is like entropy, it can't be conserved, therefore it can't be stockpiled, it can't be locked in place, it can't be monetized or commodified. And this had deep meaning for Wiener in 1950, in the early 1950s. Uh, Wiener thought this was the reason why uh, military secrets would never hold. There was no reason to be so hysterical about the so-called atomic secrets so early in the atomic age, why information could never be kind of commodified and sold for profit. So there already we can see, well, he really was not a, a creature of our time, right? We know that. But it strikes me when in other parts of the book when he talked about information, he, he drifted further away from Shannon's notion. And in fact, he, he wrote of information in ways that seemed much more of a piece with the late 19th century. Information as human expression, as intentional intellectual exchange. Information ultimately as meaning. He harumphs in very sort of curmudgeonly ways about middle-brow culture, uh, which was sort of reduced, uh, uh, evacuated of, of, of significant meaning, the mass circulation magazines, radio and television and so on. And so I wonder, is this not just something that he sort of got half right and half wrong? Was Wiener pointing more than half a century ago to a road not taken? What if we were to sort of reimagine Wiener's notion of information today? He was deeply concerned in his day about rampant militarism, about runaway corporate profit-seeking. And these convictions informed his thinking about information at least as much as Shannon's mathematics did. 
So what if the world today of artificial intelligence, of deep learning, of these exciting areas, what if these placed Wiener's notion of information at their center, uh, rather than the kind of atomized, ant-like twitches of clickstreams around which so much capital flows today? Thank you. Seth Lord is a theoretical physicist at MIT, non-PSU, professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering, and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. He's the author of Programming the Universe, A Quantum Computer Scientist Takes on the Cosmos. Please welcome Seth Lloyd. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, when uh, John suggested that we have a meeting a couple of years ago to talk about um, Norbert Wiener's uh, influence in his wonderful book, Cybernetics, I thought that was a fantastic thing because the Wiener's not forgotten at MIT. The notion of uh, cybernetics has uh, drifted away from the public consciousness. And yet it's much more relevant than it ever was. Um, uh, in a way, the reason it's drifted out of public consciousness is that there was a tremendous technological success. So the notion that you could have these interlocking feedback loops where information is collected here, sent over there, processed, sent back, so that to adjust what the system is doing and having many, many complicated ones together, this is the basis for Saturn V moon rockets, the basis for the aerospace industry, the basis for robotics. It's integrated into everything that we do. It became so successful that it did not have to be called cybernetics. Um, at the same time, as John mentioned, it had an initial tremendous flurry of interest culturally. And Wiener himself thought that he could make a great influence on how we thought about society and human society and how it worked by applying these cybernetic ideas. This was really a failure. You know, it didn't, cybernetics, these notions of describing complex social systems in terms of feedback loops, though they, of course, that's the way that complex social systems uh, operate, it didn't give new insights that allowed us to make society better. You know, it's not clear. Society is arguably not much better than it was back in the 1950s, though in many ways it is. <clears throat> um, so uh, uh, in the current climate, of artificial intelligence, which is going crazy right now. I'm, I'm actually, a lot of my research right now is on quantum machine learning, on seeing if you can, because quantum systems are capable of generating strange and counterintuitive patterns that you can't generate classically, could you also use these quantum systems to recognize patterns that you couldn't recognize by classical machine learning? I don't know. But because <laughs> no, but uh, 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 because we're now building the places like Google and IBM are, are now building the devices we need to find this out. We're going to find this out in the very same way that we found out very recently that artificial neural networks actually work. Remember that you know Wiener was almost was one of the people responsible for artificial neural networks. He brought McCulloch and Pitts to MIT. Um, who And then the basis for artificial neural networks has remained very similar. Back in the 1980s, when I was a postdoc at Caltech with Murray Gelman, I went to talk with John Hopfield. And back then, these artificial neural networks, you know, they could recognize threes and fives, but if you train them up on threes and fives, they were crappy at sevens and nines. And he said, you know, I understand this is not working very well right now, but if we had computers that were a million times more powerful, and if we had a billion times the data, it would work, I swear. And that's what happened. Though actually computers became a trillion times more powerful, we had 
uh, uh, we had uh, billions of trillions of times the amount of data, and now it's actually working. Very surprisingly, really. Okay. So, um, uh, but remember, at the back in the 1950s, there was a huge explosion in artificial intelligence. People were saying, like Minsky, were saying, we're going to have robotic maids. We'll have computers that will, will be able to take over any task that a human being can do. You know, there'll be great problems with unemployment, and they were predicting this for you know 1960s. In the 1950s, they were predicting this. Well, you know, uh, uh, back back when uh, IBM's Deep Blue became the first computer to build. Built, beat the world chess champion Gary Kasparov in chess. The best thing we had for a robotic maid was a little Roomba that would go around and, like, you know, get stuck under the, the table and go squeak, squeak, squeak. And that's, we still have that. And of course, now we, as you were saying, we empathize with them tremendously. It's a hard problem. <laughs> so <clears throat> let's not over, let's not overrate what artificial intelligence can do. AI is great and machine learning is great for very narrowly defined problems. You know, now it can beat the world Go champion at Go, a much harder problem than chess. Um, you know, it's good at recognizing handwriting. Uh, it's not very good at, you know, at uh, the ones that sell me stuff on the Internet, which is by way, of course, you know, the main application of computers. They're not very good. They, you know, I have an artificial hip, and I keep getting these advertisements like, you have this artificial hip, maybe you'd like another artificial hip. <laughs> oh, and here's a Swiss Army knife, so you can, like... <laughs> <clears throat> Finally, which brings us to the singularity. The singularity was a notion coined by John von Neumann in the late 1940s, noting the technology advances exponentially. He predicted, actually, that you know, being one of the inventors of computation, that computers we could eventually merge with the cloud. This is, by the way, if you want to live together and merge for the cloud, apart from the fact that it will be only be economically viable for a few very wealthy people. You know, didn't we learn something from, from Goethe, I mean, Faust, you know, about living forever? Like, uh, uh, you know, if uh, Ray Kurzweil wakes up as an artificial intelligence and he says, where's my cappuccino? So there aren't any cappuccinos for artificial being in the cloud. It's not going to be good. <laughs> um, so I, I think that uh, just to, to, to summarize these ideas that go into artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, the whole notion that human beings and computers have this adversarial relationship, this is an old notion, the notion that will be replaced by computers. That's also old. But what's really happening, and I think that Kate was alluding to this, is we are already in a world where artificial intelligences, at least for teenage children with their smartphones, are their best friend. You try prying away this complicated bundle of artificial intelligences that's learning everything about you and about your friends and trying to sell you stuff out of, out of the hands. You, they'd have to be cold, dead hands to make it happen. So <laughs> we're already in the regime where you know, the Chinese government is using AI and this vast knowledge to realize the totalitarian fantasies that Wiener was warning us against. You know, thank God Google's motto is don't be evil. Oh, but it's not anymore. <laughs> that was a little scary. <clears throat> so I actually think that we have a great hope for the future, not for you know artificial intelligence taking over. A little, a little you know, Pache, Stephen Hawking, and Elon Musk. A little care will prevent that from happening. We should worry about it. We shouldn't, but we should make we can make sure it's not going to happen. But we should actually look forward to a future where artificial intelligence and human beings will live together in some kind of, if not peace, at least having a lot of fun. Because the real thing about uh, you know, artificial intelligence, you'll know it's really working when it leads to real stupidity. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Next, we have Hans Ulrich Obrist, 
artistic director of the Serpentine Gallery in London, and the author of Ways of Curating and Lives of the Artists, Lives of the Architects. I'm so pleased to welcome to the stage Hans Ulrich Obrist. Thank you so much. And before starting, I just wanted to thank John uh, for bringing us all together and also, as always, for inventing new formats. Uh, so please give a very big round of applause for the amazing John Brockman. So when John asked me first to write for this book, I sort of... Uh, was thinking and suddenly remembered uh, that in my archive I had an interview I had forgotten about, which I recorded when I was a student with Heinz von Förster, one of the architects of cybernetics who worked closely with Wiener from the mid-40s and in the 60s founded the field of second-order cybernetics. When I asked von Förster how he defined cybernetics, he told me the substance of what we have learned from cybernetics is to think in circles. A leads B, B to C, but C can return to A. Such kinds of arguments are not linear, but circular. The significant contribution of cybernetics, so thinking, is to accept circular argument. This means that we have to look at circular processes and understand under which circumstances an equilibrium and thus a stable structure emerges. And then thinking about today, where algorithms of AI are applied in daily tasks, one can think how the human factor is included in these kinds of processes and which role creativity and art could play in them. And then thinking about the role of art, I wanted to revisit Marshall McLuhan, who noted in the ability, actually early on, the ability of art to anticipate the future. In the foreword to his book, Understanding Media, McLuhan calls art an early alarm system, which seems relevant for now, which is pointing us to new developments in times ahead and allowing us to prepare to cope with them. He says art as a radar environment takes on the function of indispensable perceptual training. And that, of course, leads us to the necessity of bringing artists and scientists, artists and engineers together particularly in this age of uh, AI, something we could maybe call NEAT. Uh, Peter Kluver called it EAT, Experiments in Art and Technology. I think today we need new experiments in art and technology. Hito Steil, whom we connected to many uh, programmers, says that programmers are making invisible software algorithms visible through images, but to understand and interpret these images better, we should apply the expertise of artists. And that's also what Pierre Week does, who actually works with images in the mind of a human, the brain activity is captured as a person imagines a specific situation that the subject has been prompted to think of. One by one, each thought is reconstructed by a deep neural network and the images created are exhibited in a gallery where they are in a permanent process of reconstruction. Now, our thinking is very difficult to talk about these projects without showing them, which is why I just wanted to talk about one work which you can all download, which is actually the app of Ian Chang. So for those of you who want to download the app, the app is called Bob Shrine, B-O-B-S-H-R-I-N-E. For the most part, the work of contemporary artists have been embodied ruminations on AI's impact on existential questions of the self and on our future, and on our future interaction also with non-human entities. Very few artists have taken the technologies and innovation of AI as actually the underlying materials of their work and sculpted them to their own vision, which is what Ian does with his app and with his new character, Bob. Uh, Ian Chang has actually constructed entire worlds of artificial beings with varying degrees of sentience and intelligence. He refers to these worlds as life simulations, 
His emissary trilogy is set in a fictional post-apocalyptic flora and fauna in which AI-driven animals and creatures explore the landscape and interact with each other. What is profound about Cheng's continually evolving scenes is that complexity arises not through the desire or the action of any single actor or artificial godhead, but instead through their constellation, through their collision maybe also, and through their constant evolution in symbiosis with one another. This gives rise to unexpected outcomes and unending, unknowable situation. Bob, the character, stands for bag of belief. Bob may become interested in you, Bob may love you, hate you, mistake you for someone else, learn from you, or ignore you. And you, in turn, may permanently influence Bob's behavior, beliefs, and emotional life. Bob is Bob, and everything else is everything else. It's a Bob world, after all. Thank you very much. Next, Alex Pentland is the Toshiba Professor and Professor of Media Arts and Sciences at MIT, Director of the Human Dynamics and Connections Science Labs and the Media Lab Entrepreneurship Program. He's the author of the book Social Physics, How Good Ideas Spread, The Lessons from a New Science, and more. Please welcome Alex Pentland. Thanks. So thank you for inviting me here. Um, I want to have you think back about 30 years and imagine your walk during uh, Star Trek. And what you see there is the best imagination for what science fiction, AI, would be. It would be able to recognize speech. It would be able to translate. You could see anywhere in the world, anytime. You would know where your people were. You could search all of the archives of humanity. And, of course, that's what we have in our pockets. And, in fact, this technology has spread faster than anything else that humankind has created. It is more ubiquitous than literacy, than numeracy. It's amazing. Not only that, but things that you think, well, what about our tricorder? Well, my friends and I have actually started companies doing things like Parkinson's diagnostic, depression analysis, blood pressure, diabetes, you name it. People are already making use of all the sensors and computation in there to be able to do probably actually better than the tricorder work. Now, why do people love this so much? Why do we not even recognize that this is a science fiction life that we're living? And I think the reason is that most of these things are about enhancing our abilities as humans to act as better humans. We can connect with other people. We can remember birthdays. We can meet up with people. We can remember people's names. A lot of the things that are very human are the things that are most popular. And that raises this idea, can we make these sorts of human augmentation tools extending our humanity rather than replacing it and make us better humans, smarter humans? I think that we can. Is it necessarily going to happen? No. Look at Facebook. What is the principle that lets us tell good things from bad things? Well, I think, interestingly, you can look at AI itself, today's AI, to be able to understand that. The core thing in today's AI is something called the credit assignment problem. 
They take lots of examples. They see whether this collection of neurons and connections gets it right or gets it wrong. If it gets it wrong, you sort of tamp down the connections that weren't working. If it gets it right, you amp up the ones that were. Well, that's rather like human society. We're a big network. We have decision uh, elements. That's us. And sometimes things work and some things don't work. And if we look at how our connections help us get places, we can have continuous learning the way that these neural networks do. We could actually get much smarter, but we need a couple of things. One is you need continuous learning. You need diversity. These sorts of networks are not a whole bunch of nodes reporting to one master. They're connected everywhere. Our societies today are very segregated, not just by race, but by income. The people in this room probably do not talk to people from lower socioeconomic classes. We've actually done studies on this and find that that is far more segregated than it was 30 years ago, everywhere in the world also. So we need to take those principles and use those if we are going to get smarter in using these tools. So one way to think about that is we need to get rid of this notion of rational individual, the genius that was talked about earlier. We're part of a fabric. We need our fabric better, not necessarily just the individuals. But the other thing that we need is more contentious. We need to measure whether we're doing well or poorly continuously. And of course, that's very scary. We're going to have all this data about things, right? So perhaps the humans need to take control of the means of production of the data. And that way we can decide how to guide ourselves in the way we train our AIs. And as you might guess, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm working with cooperatives and unions all around the world who already have the legal rights to help their members control their data and have the solution that we had to Standard Oil and GE and so forth back a century ago, which is collective bargaining by people now over the valuable resource that we have, which is data. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Pentland. Next, we have Steven Pinker, a Johnstone family professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, who is an experimental psychologist who conducts research in visual cognition, psycholinguistics, and social relations. He is the author of 11 books, including The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and most recently, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Please welcome Steven Pinker. Thank you. I have been interested in artificial intelligence for as long as I've been interested in natural intelligence, which is to say human cognition. Uh, artificial intelligence is a vindication of one of the great ideas in intellectual history, which is that we can understand 
uh, mind and intelligence, not by appealing to some uh, elan vital, to some immaterial soul, to some ghost in the machine, but in terms of the intelligible processes of information, computation, and control. Control in the sense of uh, feedback and uh, feed-forward, control of... (coughs) uh, Mechanics, the original sense of cybernetics uh, uh, coming, coming from the Greek root from, for control. Uh, if, indeed, intelligence consists of processing information, what the late Jerry Fodor called the computational theory of mind, we should be able to uh, build our own systems that process information that can uh, duplicate what the human mind can do. The fact that we have been uh, beginning to succeed is a, a vindication of this great idea, probably going back to Thomas Hobbes when he said, reasoning is but reckoning, reckoning in the original sense of calculation or computation. Artificial intelligence also helps, uh, for me at least, clarify explanations in cognitive psychology when we appeal to uh, a mental image as a representation that people use in problem solving. When we think about a child acquiring a first language from uh, incoming uh, sentences heard in context. When we try to make sense of the meaning of words, what is the di- difference between our concept of pouring and filling and loading and placing and putting? It's by couching theories in terms of uh, explicit rules and computations that we can uh, exercise the ghost in the machine and know that we are uh, uh, actually understanding uh, mental processes in a rigorous way. I have uh, later in my career been forced to think about artificial intelligence for a completely uh, different reason, which is that through a circuitous chain of uh, interests spawning interests, I have written a couple of books on human progress quantitatively documenting the fact that uh, our lives have been getting longer, healthier, uh, happier, safer, um, more peaceful in just about any way that you can quantify. In presenting these data, I've often been uh, warned that uh, we are living in a fool's paradise, that all this progress will quickly come crashing down when we are subjugated by our own inventions uh, to wit artificial intelligence. In uh, one scenario, uh, artificial intelligence will do to us what we have done to less intelligent creatures, namely to subjugate them, keep them as pets, pets, uh, exploit them. Another version of the scenario, they will destroy us as collateral damage. We will give an artificial intelligence the goal of achieving world peace. And since peace is the absence of conflict, the easiest way to achieve that is to euthanize every human being, and then you won't get any human being uh, preying on any other one. Or if you give it the goal of curing cancer, then it will turn us all into... uh, 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 conscript us as involuntary subjects for uh, fatal Mengele-like experiments because that would be its concept of curing cancer. Needless to say, I don't lose much sleep over either of these existential threats in part because of uh, what I would consider a rigorous analysis of what intelligence uh, consists of. Uh, I don't worry about artificial intelligence taking over because I think that comes from a projection of Uh, what we understand about the human mind onto the concept of intelligence in general, a habit that, as uh, Kate reminded us, we are all too prone to. Because 
in a particular species that we're familiar with, Homo sapiens, intelligence comes bundled with a number of drives, such as the uh, the, the drive to uh, to dominate and to exploit, simply because our our intelligence is a product of natural selection and inherently competitive process. We're apt to project the drive for dominance onto the very concept of intelligence itself, which uh, I believe is is a, a uh, fallacy. The goals that we give an artificial intelligence program uh, have nothing to do with its power to achieve those goals. As for the fear that will be turned into um, uh, paper clips or uh, other collateral damage from uh, a, uh, an AI system, that too, I believe, misunderstands the concept of intelligence. Intelligence does not consist of pursuing a single goal regardless of the consequences. Uh, intelligence always consists of satisfying multiple goals simultaneously. A system that would, in a literal-minded way, take the simplest possible interpretation and carry it out all the rest of the consequences be damned, is not an artificially intelligent system. It is an artificially uh, stupid system. Thank you. Next, we have Max Tegmark. Max Tegmark is an MIT physicist and AI researcher, president of the Future of Life Institute, scientific director of the Foundational Questions Institute, and the author of Our Mathematical Universe and Life 3.0, Being Human, the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Please welcome to the podium, Max Tegmark. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You look very happy and optimistic. Glad Steven Pinker has put you in an optimistic mood here. I'm going to be the bad guy and maybe, maybe ruin it a little bit. So first of all, of course... Maybe it's silly to worry about artificial intelligence doing bad things to humanity, but take a moment and think about your least favorite political leader on the planet. Just visualize them and what they might want to do. And now imagine that they have in the future an artificial general intelligence. It's way smarter than all humans. How do you feel now? So there's certainly stuff that we can worry about, but at the same time, I'm a pretty cheerful person myself because I think a lot about how if we can build the original vision of the AI founders of the 50s that we heard of, we can use this to accelerate medical science and ultimately cure hopefully all diseases. We can lift everybody out of poverty. We can create a future that's even more mind-blowingly inspiring than, than the most optimistic science fiction writers used to think about. So I see us as standing not in front of a doom or in front of something which is guaranteed to go great, but in front of instead the most important decision that humans will ever make. Are we going to use this technology to just wipe ourselves out or to flourish like never before? My friend Jan Tallinn, who some of you know as one of the founders of Skype, he likes to make this beautiful metaphor where he likens the development of technology to the development of a rocket and says it's not enough to make our technology powerful or our rocket powerful. We also have to figure out how to steer it and where we want to go with it. And tonight we heard from Kate, Kate Darling, you put it very well, that newspaper article, journalists, especially in British tabloids, they love talking about humanity going extinct, etc. But you said, but you're in, we're focusing on other questions. And in fact, almost everybody focuses on more near-term 
questions. We've heard that from all my esteemed speakers here almost tonight also, if, aside from a few jokes about from Seth about maybe this uploaded life won't have cappuccino and, and, and a few other things. There's very little serious talk about the actual destination. My, my um, friend Michael Vassar has a slightly darker metaphor. He says, the bad news is humanity is driving towards a cliff. The good news is there's no one at the wheel. <laughs> so why is it that I'm so confident, first of all, that we are going to get one day artificial general intelligence? Well, I think there are three reasons which make it together almost inevitable. Or well, four, actually. Steven Pinker summarized the first one, which is, Intelligence is not something mysterious that can only exist in human minds. It's, I'm a blob of quarks processing information, and according to physics, we can, it's possible to do this. Second, there's economics. Whenever someone develops this kind of technology, of course, companies and others are going to use it, or they get outcompeted by those who don't. Third is curiosity. You know, we scientists just love trying to figure stuff out, and then once it's figured out, economics does the rest. The fourth is we're mortal. So, you know, it's pretty hard if we're choosing between death and some technology we don't know where it's going to take us. Hey, let's gamble it a little bit. Uh, why, why do we... So if this is probably going to happen, you know, recent surveys of AI researchers suggest it's going to happen within decades, then why aren't we talking more about where we're going with this? I think here also there are some obvious reasons for it. One is wishful thinking. You know, it's not fun to think about about negative stuff. Um, another one, actually, I, rather than go into this in great detail, since I see this rather less advanced intelligence tells me there are only sixty seconds left, I'm going to cut to the chase and do what pro professors can't resist doing, which is give homework to the audience. So here's my homework for you. Ask yourselves about what destination you are really excited about. Ultimately, technology isn't evil, nor is it morally good, right? It's just something which empowers us and gives us ever more influence over our own destiny, right? So what kind of future would you like to live in? What kind of future would you like your children and grandchildren to live in? What would you like it to be like to be human, if we have machines that can do everything better and cheaper than us. Sure, maybe machines can do all our jobs, but if we can have a lifelong vacation and get all the income we need, it might not be so bad. How, but how do you want people in this future to have mean, find meaning and purpose in their lives and friends, which is also stuff we, we get from our, from our current forms of employment? Also, do you want, do you want to have a very sort of slave-like relationship with AI, like many of my colleagues want, where where whoever what controls the AI just has it disconnected from the internet and uses it to create unimaginable wealth and power for themselves? Or do you prefer having some kind of a more cordial relationship with, with AI where AI treats us well not because it has to, but because we've figured out somehow how to make the AI learn, understand, learn, and adopt our goals? What sort of future do you want? The more... You think about it, and the more we can all rally around a shared positive vision for the future, the more likely we are to get it. Thank you.
Our last speaker is Stephen Wolfram, a scientist, inventor, and the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research. He's the creator of the symbolic computation program, Mathematica, and its programming language, Wolfram Language, as well as the knowledge engine, Wolfram Alpha. He is the author of A New Kind of Science. Please welcome Stephen Wolfram. All right. Well, this book has a terrific title, Possible Minds. The question is, what can, what can be a mind? People have often said things like, the weather has a mind of its own. And in the past, that's been viewed as a kind of pre-scientific thought. One of the things that came out of a bunch of science that I've done over the last 30-something, no, what is it, nearly 40 years now, is that that actually isn't such a silly idea. The fact is, if you look at the space of possible computations that can be done, the, the, the set of things that uh, even very simple programs in the kind of computational universe of possible programs can do, it turns out that many of these programs can do things that are as sophisticated as any other program. They can do things which are uh, capable of a level of computation that seems to be as sophisticated as what happens in our brains, what happens in... Uh, and uh, so what we realize is that across many different kinds of, uh, uh, of substrates, so to speak, we're seeing things which are like minds. We see that in things like the weather and hydrodynamic processes that go on in the weather. We see that in simple programs that we can just create and enumerate and so on. So what, what seems to be the case is that there's this sort of ocean of computational capability that exists that uh, is capable of doing mind-like things. I think the thing that is sort of interesting to see at this time is we're, we're getting to... Uh, the, the question is, how do we take that ocean of computational capability and make it do things that are useful for us as humans? And I've spent a large part of my life building computational languages that try to communicate kind of things that we think about and make a bridge between the way we think about things and that sort of ocean of computational capability that exists out there in the computational universe. And the thing we realize about AI and so on, people say, well, what will be possible to do with AI? Uh, many things, once we will, can be done computationally, it's rather easy, I think, to make sort of mind-like behavior in, in simple, even simple computational systems. The issue, though, is what do you want the AI to do? How do you define the goals for the AI? And I think in, in that area, it's sort of almost by definition, you don't get to automate the goals. The goals are something that arise in our case as humans, from some long history of development of humans and our biological evolution and cultural evolution and so on. And what we end up having to do from a technological point of view is to find some way to communicate kind of our, our goals, find some way to represent our goals so that it can be understood by this uh, computational system which can then execute it. I think the kind of the view of what one should imagine the future to be like is we get to specify what we want to have happen and then as, as automatically as possible, we get our AIs to go do those things. And I have spent a long time actually building practical systems that uh, try to implement the idea of going from sort of a representation of goals that exists in a computational language which we humans can think in terms of, 
by the way, that, that's something where back 300 years ago or so now, kind of this idea of mathematical representations of thinking became popular, and that's kind of defined a lot of the, the science and so on that has emerged in the last 300 years. At this point, we now have this kind of computational way of thinking, and we now have this kind of computational language which allows us to sort of represent that kind of computational thinking in the way that mathematical notation, for example, represents mathematical thinking, and that's allowing us to do a lot of important things, sort of a, a computational X for all fields X. But it's also the thing that allows us to define what it is that we want this whole sort of vast computational uh, ocean of possibilities to, to do for us. So the question then is, we, we, to know what we want it to do, that correspond that that's determined by our kind of our set of goals and so on sort of an interesting thing that once one has if one asks how have the goals of humans evolved over the course of history the th many of the things one might do today you know walking on a treadmill something like that are goals that would be hard to explain to somebody from a thousand years ago what tends to happen is that there's kind of a, a spiral of once one has a certain set of goals, one creates technology, one sort of uh, creates a, a framework for thinking about things, one makes words and languages and so on that represent these things, and then one builds kind of a progressive layer of, of platforms of what amounts to abstraction or, or, or something that, um, that sort of give you this, this uh, more and more layers of goals that, uh, that one builds up. And so this question of what will be the evolution of goals for humans, I think, is an interesting one. And we can see it's sort of a co-evolution that's happening with, uh, uh, with AIs, with computational systems of the kinds of goals that we humans can even imagine having. I mean, it's sort of an interesting thing that people wonder, you know, there's been a debate certainly for uh, all the time that I can remember of, you know, will we make AIs that are as smart as humans? And I personally have been responsible for a number of things where people said, when we know that, um, that you know, when a, when a machine finally is able to do this, then we'll know that it's smart. And it's sort of disappointing to realize that, you know, I've done the actual engineering that's made machines do those things, that what's happening inside is kind of just engineering, and it's not really something that, uh, is, uh, that looks like what, what uh, uh, I feel at least we humans are doing. Now, uh, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, I realized at some point that there's this kind of uh, computational equivalence between lots of different kinds of systems. So in a sense, what's happening inside our computers actually is more similar to what's happening in our brains than we might have thought. But one thing, two, two last comments. I think that um, a thing I kind of find interesting is there's the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is going on. Meanwhile, we have artificial intelligence that's kind of gradually bubbling up. Um, I think there's sort of a question when we see, I mentioned the idea of, you know, the weather has a mind of its own. If you are listening to the radio signals from a pulsar and it has these complicated physical processes going on its magnetosphere and you get these very complicated signals that are being produced, you are saying to yourself, that's just a physical process. That's not something intelligent. That's not a mind-like thing. Somebody could look at our planet and say, gosh, you know, these radio signals that are being produced, that's not a, something intelligence, that's just a physical process that's going on on this planet that's producing these radio signals. This principle of computational equivalence idea is kind of a disappointing one in some sense because it's kind of a, a Copernican-type uh, moment for, for, for our thinking about ourselves. We, we have always thought, well, there wasn't, you know, we thought the, the Earth was the center of the universe. We thought, you know, our chemistry was very special, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of these things is true. 
But now we still think our intelligence is something very, very special. I don't think that's true. And I think one of the things that's sort of ironic is that people will, you know, wonder, you know, where's, where's extraterrestrial intelligence? You know, is, can we find, um, uh, you know, this pulsar magnetosphere? That's not an example of extraterrestrial intelligence. Meanwhile, they're asking, will, you know, are the AIs doing things which are mind-like and kind of uh, similar to what we humans do? Right around the same time, people finally decide that, uh, that AIs um, are that it's sort of inevitable that there are these non-human uh, intelligences that can exist. That will be about the same time people realize that extraterrestrial intelligence has, has the same kind of issue. It's just kind of that there are, there are many possible minds in the universe, um, and they're not necessarily ones that uh, evolve from uh, in, in the detailed way that our particular one has, has done. I could, uh, maybe I should, I could, I could, I should stop that. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, Thank you so much, Stephen, and thank you to all 13 of our speakers and, of course, to John Brockman himself. Uh, One more round of applause.